Hello, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and an adult and pediatric ID fellow. We are back with another Febrile Digest. I know it has been a while, but these are bonus episodes in between our cases about various topics or questions in ID. So I am always on the hunt for different resources to share with people. And I found a new podcast but it's not actually a new podcast. It's just new to me. <laughs> um, so I invited some new friends from the Idiots podcast. But uh, rather than introducing you as an idiot, I would much prefer if you guys would tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, we are from the Idiots podcast. That stands for Infectious <laughs> Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jame, and that's Callum. Cal, how you doing? <laughs> Good. This is me. <laughs> Uh, I was saying before we started recording that I thought it would be strange because I'm usually the editor and it's a, a, such, a, <laughs> such a joy actually to be thinking that I'm not going to be listening back to myself and having to edit out all the, I mean, well, I don't actually have to edit myself at all because everything I say is, is just straight away correct and right. <laughs> is that so? So difficult. Oh. <laughs> well, can you guys tell everyone maybe just like a, quick snippet about like why you started the podcast and what you guys cover sure so um we jame and i were training together in scotland infectious diseases and we were both sitting a um, infectious diseases exam that we have to sit for um, well for jame it was his exit exam training and for me it was part one of a, a two-parter and we were revising for that and we I guess we thought that there was a, a gap in the market for another resource to help people revise for the exam. So that's really where it came from. Um, that's the combined infection certificate examination. I never quite remember what it stands for. Mm. Uh, so James, at this point, well, I'll let James say, but I, I, I'm still in training. I've got two more years left of infectious diseases and um, medical microbiology uh, training before becoming a consultant or attending. Although at the moment I'm doing a medical education fellowship. So that's me. Yeah, and I'm uh, I, I finished training, so I um, I've come down to to England, and I'm doing a, a post CCT clinical fellowship uh, in infectious disease uh, in Nados Royal Infirmary Brackets South, which is the fictionalised hospital that me and Callum uh, work in, uh, and Callum remains in Nados Royal Infirmary Brackets North, uh, which we anonymised several weeks into the podcast. And stated several times before we did that we worked in Lothian. And just to be absolutely clear, Calm has not moved uh, since we started the <laughs> podcast. But nevertheless, we have completely anonymized um, where we work. So Nados Royal Infirmary North is an undisclosed location in Scotland. <laughs> I see. Well, one, I wanted to introduce everyone to you guys. And then two, we get to talk about whatever we really want in these digest episodes. And we thought that talking about how gentamicin is used in different settings would be really interesting, um, which in the States is is really just not that much. But you guys have a lot more experience with gentamicin. Let, let me start by asking you a question, um, Sarah. How much gentamicin or any aminoglycoside do you use in your practice, be it pediatric or be it adult? In general, it's I mean, it's not a lot. I I would say most of the time it comes up, it's going to be some kind of combination therapy. So, you know, in the empiric setting, it might be that we're already giving some kind of cephalosporin and 
you know, you're worried because of either the patient's history or they're really sick, critically ill. And so you think you might be dealing with a serious gram negative infection. And so you give a second agent, meaning the yeah. aminoglycoside, yeah. in hopes that your bug is susceptible to at least one of them. And then we'll sort of peel it off as quickly as we can. Mm. You know, it's in, in pediatrics, it's not uncommon for neonates to get the ampicillin gentamicin combo. But some of it is often historical or just protocol based. And so I think. A lot of us see perhaps OBGYN infections that are based on older guidelines that recommend combos of AMP, GENT, and CLINDA. And typically, if we're consulted, we'll come on and say, oh, there's not really any reason we can't use an alternative and we'll transition them. But there are, of course, cases where we might use it for directed therapy when you have a known resistant organism. But I think monotherapy in most settings in the States is relatively rare. And outside of that, it's usually synergistic settings like for endocarditis. But really, even in that setting, I feel like we're moving away from that if we have some sort of alternative that we can use. Yeah, I feel the same, particularly with enterococcal endocarditis. Uh, People have moved away from AG, so amoxicillin plus gentamicin, and and towards AC, amoxicillin keftriaxone, for toxicity concerns. And that's, that's happening even in... In Scotland, where uh, me and Calm were working, and Calm still works, where people are very comfortable with aminoglycoside use um, because it's used as our in our empirical uh, therapy, and that's kind of why we wanted to uh, to talk about it today. So this is a bit of a sort of an intellectual sort of like why you would want to use this more and how you could use it, and why you may be moving towards using it more in the future as we encounter more problems with a kind of antimicrobial resistance. Mm-hmm. Cal, do you want to kind of go through the sort of uh, structure background bit or do you want me to take that? I, I can take something because I feel like otherwise it's going to be another uh, James McRae. James just uh, rants. <laughs> <laughs> nonstop. Uh, and also about... I feel like I might just like simplify it a little bit because uh, James... Uh, not only trained in infectious diseases, but also in clinical pharmacology. And so I don't think there's anything that you like more in life than uh, explaining mm. the, 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 the minutiae of... Uh, He's drawing molecular structures in the wall. <laughs> this is all Scuttle's accusations, which I'm not going to deny. Yeah. Um, but, so, um, so, uh, <laughs> are, uh, so most people probably know, but they're amine so that's a protein part and then glycosides that's the sugar part of the molecule they're very polarized so they they have a a charge and that means that they usually stay where you the the space that you place them into so whether that's topical so thinking about like eardrops or something uh and if you're giving it intravenously or uh, in the urinary tract um they've been around for quite a long time so streptomycin neomycin were discovered in 1943 and used for a tb treatment uh, although we're still getting more, so the newer one is plasomycin, twenty eighteen. Callum, why do some of them uh, end with an my mycin and some end with an mi mycin? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, so <laughs> the ones that end with an my are in the streptomyces group, whereas the ones that end with an mi cin, they're in the micromonospora group, and they're they're what you can isolate them from uh, the yeah. the different aminoglycosides. So generally speaking, the older ones are in the MY group, but that doesn't always bear out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, and you can also structure them. You can group them by chemical structure as well as the other way yeah, of doing it. I think that's the better way of doing it, actually. Yeah, it makes more sense, doesn't it? So uh, you've got your streptomycin group, so that's streptomycin, or the neomycin group, which is neomycin, which is generally only used topical, I believe, because of toxicity reasons. Uh, yes. Um, right. And uh, paramomycin, which um, I don't think I actually recognized was an aminoglycoside until right now, but we use it for GI clearance of Giardia to um, get rid of the cysts I forget the it's term. for intraluminal clearance of the gear intraluminal yes, clearance, that's right. intraluminal clearance yeah. um and then finally got the canamycin group which has got gentamicin topramycin amicacin and plasmacin which is i think you know we use gentamicin in scotland mostly but other centers will use different ones usually based on local epidemiology of resistance yeah, well, quite a lot of the time, actually, it's due to what got the license first. So um, uh, gentamicin and tobramycin, and in Eastern Europe, it would be streptomycin, are very commonly used. Um, some centres would suggest that tobramycin, because it's got better pseudomonal cover, should be the drug of choice. And really, in terms of toxicity, they're both kind of about the same. Mm. Um, and so you've got that better pseudomonal cover without kind of a noticeable increase in side effects and certainly UCAST would uh, agree which we'll come on to in a sec if you're going to use a aminoglycoside sir would you yeah what do you use in the US um people will use gen or tobra for those sort of like um uh empiric settings and then you know amicase when we're treating TB and TM type stuff mm, yeah. so there's a mixture most places have I feel like they'll have all of them available or maybe they'll only stock one or the other, but, um, yeah. And is it hospital specific? So if you go to a different hospital, would you have a different one or is it sort of by, by, by kind of area or like would all of Boston use the same one or is it not like that? I feel like most places could have access to both, but there may be places that they like tend to use one more than the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I suppose the, the canamycin group is the one that's got the antibiotics that we use for uh, for kind of serious um, infection. Uh, Calm, how do they work? How do they work? Mm. So they irreversibly bind to the 30S subunit of the rRNA complex, and that leads to misreading of mRNA codons, and that leads to impaired protein synthesis. And so they're in this sort of, if you thought, you know, bacteriostatic category uh, from if you that care effect, about that but anyway we don't we don't really yeah i feel like it's something that you learn and read in textbooks and then people talk about oh well you know you can't use that on its own because it's back to your static but i don't know if it's ever really borne out in the data to say you know and i think i'm sure i saw a paper recently which was comparing bacteria static and bacteria's idle agents and they're just like you know what is this who cares like the, the clinical yeah. data <laughs> isn't there to support and it's being important so why do we keep teaching it and then you write that slide recently, and like, Callum, it's bacteria static. You're like, well, why, why are we perpetuating this? If um, uh, by then, recently, Calm, you mean three years ago in a journal club presented by me, then yes, you have recently <laughs> uh, uh, watched a paper being presented. And yes, you're right. The static versus societal thing, I'm, I'm, I think it's actually pretty well known in the ID community now, is absolute nonsense. And the yeah. fact that there's plenty of antibiotics, like linezolid is a bacteria static um uh antibiotic and has gone head to head with flu clots for treatment of staph aureus infection and is the only thing that's ever uh be been 
uh, non-inferior, to the best of my knowledge, uh, compared to you know anti-staphylococcal penicillins, be it fluclocks or cloxacillin or or diclox. So I mean that just kind of on its own sort of puts the whole idea of static and sidal to bed. But they do have another, a second mechanism of action, don't they, Callum? A bactericidal yeah, one. Because it's cationic, so we talked earlier on about having a charge, so uh, it's cationic uh, charge, which means that it binds the anionic cell membrane components. And the, the sort of charge effect, it reduces the membrane integrity, which leads to cell lysis. And that part is thought to be bactericidal. Mm. And that's um, kind of hard for the cell to deal with because the gentamicin is usually actively transported into the cell. I forget exactly the the mechanism. Uh, I know that streptococci don't have it, and that's why streptococci aren't covered by uh, uh, by aminoglycosides uh, in general. Um, yeah, uh, and it's something that can be lost, like Pseudomonas likes to lose it, and that's how it acquires resistance. That's the main mechanism. Um that and aminoglycoside modifying enzymes. When it comes to sort of spectrum of action, Gent and Tobra have very similar uh, spectrums of action. So in fact, they're, they're, most of them will cover staphylococci and they'll cover gram-negative organisms and they'll cover pseudomonas, except streptomycin. It doesn't cover pseudomonas so much. Uh, another reason that, that you might not want to use it as your kind of baseline um, gram-negative cover. Um, but it does cover TB, as does amicacin. Tobramycin, has, as we've said before, has better anti-pseudomonal cover. And so some people, like the Canadians, for example, would suggest that if you're covering, if you're trying to treat pseudomonas infection, you should just use Tobra um, all the time. We kind of, so why are we talking about this historical drug? Everybody knows it's got terrible kidney uh, toxicity and it can make you go deaf and it can make you have vestibular symptoms as well. We've got other things that cover gram negatives. We've got Piptaz, we've got Comos, we've got, um, you know, Cephalosporins. Why would you bother using gentamicin at all? So... I presume this is where you tell us. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what to talk about first. Um, so about, uh, here's a quick history uh, lesson, Sarah. Up until right. about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, Scotland and the rest of the UK were using cephalosporins as their, as their um, sort of gram-negative cover for empirical treatment of infection. And historically, sort of up until the 80s when cephalosporins became widely available, people would usually use something like amoxicillin or ampicillin plus gentamicin to cover stuff if they had an infection and they didn't know what they were covering. And then because cephalosporins are, you know, cheaper, some of them are once a day, like ceftriaxone uh, is once a day, um, and uh, that's less nursing time, you know, people just kind of moved over to that. And cephalosporins and things like amoxicillin clavulanate were used as the kind of basic cover. Uh, I've mentioned before on our podcast, like when I was starting training as a as an F1 in 2006, so like the first year uh, of, of being an intern, uh, the joke was that if you came in under the surgeons, you got keftriaxone and metronidazole. And if you came in under the medics, you got comoxiclav and clarithromycin uh, to treat chest sepsis and, and basically just treat everything. And it was kind of true. 
And then in 2008, or in the two years for 2007-2008, there was a C. diff outbreak in a small hospital in Scotland called Vale of Leven. Uh, it was in the two years of the outbreak, there were 143 cases of C. difficile and uh, 34 of them died. So that is a 24% mortality. And Sarah, just for reference, this is a 92-bed hospital, so barely bigger than a community hospital or a cottage hospital in the west of Scotland, sort of kind of west of Glasgow. So these are absolutely massive numbers, like a big proportion of people were getting C. diff if they went to the Vale, and then uh, some of them were dying. And there was a huge inquiry, uh, and uh, there was lots of reasons for failing. The building was kind of falling to bits, as some quite a lot of hospitals in, in the UK are. There were no wash hand basins in some wards. There was lots of understaffing. All the doctors were basically juniors. There was hardly any consultant cover. And one thing that also came out was that the prescribing was absolutely terrible. People were basically going on keftriaxone at the drop of a hat. And people thought that that was one of the one of the main contributors because if you've got a drug environment where C. diff can flourish because everybody's on keftriaxone or comoxiclav, if you have an outbreak strain because there are outbreak and non-outbreak strains of C. diff and it gets into your hospital, it's just going to spread like wildfire. And uh, then, uh, you know, a bunch of people are going to die and that's exactly what happened. It was... You know, it was profoundly embarrassing for the for the government, and then people said that basically this is this should never happen again. So, starting in two thousand eight in Glasgow and Lanarkshire, and then spreading throughout the rest of the country over the next six years, we moved from using keflosporins and comoxiclav and ciprofloxacin and other quinolones, and what's the other four C? Clindamycin. We took them out of our empirical uh, treatments for everything, basically, except where they were absolutely essential, like keftraxone for meningitis or clindamycin for necrotizing fasciitis. And we replaced it with our current uh, sort of regimen. So just to give people an idea of what it is, say, Sarah, you wanted to cover somebody for kind of broad-spectrum infections, so you didn't know what you were wanting to cover, and you wanted to cover gram-positives, gram-negatives, maybe pseudomonas, maybe not, it doesn't matter, and anaerobes. What would your choices be? What would you use in your in your hospital? Yeah, I mean, most of the time it's going to be something like ceftraxone or cefepime, plus or minus anaerobic coverage if they need it, plus or minus MRSA coverage if they need it. Mm. And so for MRSA, what would you use? I mean, usually vanc. Vancomycin, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, if the I, I would say in the adult hospital, there certainly is more clindamycin use in pediatrics, but um, that's probably usually the combo they'll get placed on in the emergency department. Yes, yes, um, and that's and and that's even true of where I work uh, at the moment down here because this what Scotland has done, um, it's not spread throughout the UK. It hit the border. And then, like, nothing happened. Um, and that was kind of a bit of a shock to find out. So say you uh, came in and you had sepsis of unknown source and you were in Glasgow or Edinburgh or Dundee or what have you. Um, we would give you amoxicillin to cover streptococci and some enterococci, but mostly it's the streps that matter. Gentamicin for some staph aureus cover. It's not as good as an anti-staphylococcal penicillin, but it'll do and gram-negatives and pseudomonas. 
and metronide is all for anaerobic cover if we thought there was like a GI thing going on or if there was a possibility. And so if you think of somebody coming in with, say, a chest infection, um, the amoxicillin is good for that. Gentamicin, what's it contributing? Probably not all that much. If it's skin and soft tissue, I have to say, we'd probably just give them flucloxacillin. We wouldn't give them anything else. But this is for people where they've got sepsis and you don't know where it's coming from. So you have to cover urine, chest, and GI. And then if you're thinking about urine, chest, and GI sources, amoxgent and met is appropriate polymicrobial cover. It's appropriate urine cover. Um, and it's uh, okay for the chest. I mean, it's not very uh, good. If you were really concerned, you might want to consider adding in a macrolide or changing the amoxicillin to comoxiclav. But certainly that's kind of reasonably broad cover. And the, the reason that we started using it is that it's low risk for C. diff. So metronidazole and gentamicin are, you know, low, not zero risk, but very low risk for C. difficile. And amoxicillin is only kind of mild to moderate, really. Whereas just giving everybody comoxiclav or just giving everybody keftriaxone plus or minus metronidazole um, is quite C. diffigenic. So if you have that in your empirical guidance, you run the risk of having another outbreak. And at the time that it was implemented in Scotland, that was just completely unacceptable. I was going to say that there, because I guess we talk about individual antibiotics and say, this is low risk for C. diff, this is high risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can find there's like a meta-analysis that's, is it meta-analysis or is it a systematic review where they do a forest plot of all the different antibiotics? And I find that quite useful to go back and review because the quality, the like level of evidence and the quality of the evidence to make these inferences about the C. diff risk of different antibiotics, I don't think is very good. But the clinical data for, for this is good in terms of, you know, well, you, you were talking about the, the history there. 2008 comes around and you can see a, a marked drop in C. diff rates with the change to the gentamicin backbone. Yeah. So so what happened uh, then, Callum? What were the effects of uh, changing over to this, uh, this kind of low risk? Yeah. So, um, you know, after it was changed over, I think, one, there was a lot of people that has spend a lot more time prescribed because gentamicin is more complicated to prescribe. Mm, it is. Uh, and I, something that popped in my head there was actually is is the fact that there's a slightly higher barrier to giving antibiotics. It's slightly more difficult. Does that make people actually, you know, that balance of, <laughs> you know, if, if it's slightly more difficult to do something, you're less likely to do it and you don't give antibiotics just because it's easy to give. You have to like actually think, do I really want to go and do a gentamicin chart? I mean, that's an aside, and I don't know about the answer to that. But what we do know is that there was a lot lower C. diff risk. So you can see there's like graphs where they look at the, the, the rates over time and map it to the health board and when they change and, you know, a, a very sizable drop in C. diff rates. Yeah. Um, other thing that we noted was lower, lower MRSA rates. Mm. Um, there may be other reasons for that ongoing in terms of that time period. But, you know, prior to 2010, there was quite a big problem with MRSA in Scotland. And that's really... MRSA, I would say, is now very rare uh, to encounter as a clinical phenomenon, uh, unless the patients had a lot of healthcare contact. Yeah, that that is um, a bit odd, and I don't really know that I've got like a hard explanation for that. But certainly, that's something that we saw when we looked at the data. Um, um, and then the other things is you see that there, the mortality rate from gram-negative sepsis dropped. Um, there wasn't any difference in ICU admission, length of stay, 
or need for renal replacement therapy, which was a sort of proxy for um, mm. uh, nephrotoxicity. Uh, we also haven't really seen an increase in aminoglycoside resistance. So although the vast, you know, 30% of hospital inpatients end up with an infection, and of those in, uh, in Scotland, most of those patients will be treated with aminoglycoside, we haven't seen a rise, really, in aminoglycoside resistance. And we've got really good data for this which is really, you know, surprising, I guess. Uh, and the other thing we've seen is a drop in comoxiclav, keftrax from resistance. We don't really map, like most labs in Scotland don't look at the mechanism of resistance or test for it, so you can infer. But, you know, ESBL and AMPC uh, rates have, have dropped as well. So which does mean that when you have to use those antimicrobials, then you're less stuck. You know, I guess in 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 my head... Part of it is, is it actually because of which antibiotic we're using or is it because, and there's so many other things that have happened, but there's a real big focus on antimicrobial stewardship and saying to people, thinking hard about, do you actually need to start antimicrobials? And that is in the, but then, you know, I guess my clinical experience is that we still use loads and loads of antibiotics and most people end up getting some antibiotics during their admission. So well, yeah, we do, but I mean, the antibiotics that people are using are narrow spectrum and and sort of low risk, and so if there's less of a need for stewardship if they're reaching for the amox and the gentamicin as opposed to if they're reaching for the keftraxone or the meropenem, do you know what I mean? Like if you're trying, if we're trying to preserve beta lactams because beta lactams are best lactams, and they're the thing that everybody uses then that's going to be really difficult because you know resistance you're you're going to create a hospital environment in which third generation cephalosporin resistance and have resistance is like the first on the priority list of the bugs and if you're a hospital uh, bug and you're trying to live in the environment like a serratia or you're living in somebody's gi tract like your top priority will be to acquire resistance to third generation cephalosporins if that's the only thing that you see all the time um mm. so yeah i mean there, there are other reasons for thinking that the uh, switch into uh, to gentamicin is a is a good idea the bit that was surprising that was is that we've not really seen an increase in resistance and the only thing that i can think of as a as a kind of a reason is it's hospital only. You can't really get it in the community. We certainly in Edinburgh, uh, Lothian, I mean, wherever Nados, Royal Infirmary North happens to be, um, never really used it in OPAT, in an OPAT setting, um, unless we absolutely had to. Uh, and even then, some of the times you would be given amicacin for for kind of resistance issues. And I guess the, the fact that you can't give it and I guess that's true of Keftraxon too, but certainly Colmoxiclav you can get in the community and it can be prescribed, you know, in a range of infection scenarios. And and that can sort of increase your your uh, kind of risk of resistance developing. So why why is, you know, we're, we're extolling the virtues of moving to uh, aminoglycoside-based backbone for your treatment. And, you know, I think you've left the, the bubble um jame and and move somewhere where they're not using it and i know that we've had many conversations o- offline about about this and your your thoughts on it so why you know is, is this a failure of of us to to you know evangelize the use of amino glycosides and go around with 
you know, branding, you know, what, what's happened that means that nobody else is doing it? Because, you know, my experience in training is, is really be just been in Scotland. Mm. So I haven't practiced elsewhere and uh, I, I can't really imagine a world where I wouldn't be using it. But I guess that's, that happens a lot of the time with a silo of practice, isn't it? Well, imagine my shock, Callum, when I uh, left uh, Scotland for pastures new and found that everybody was getting Colmoxiclav with one hand and Keftraxone with the other. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I mean, I certainly, I, the, there's lots of reasons not to use an aminoglycoside. Um, you know, giving Keftraxone is easier. You know, it's it's one dose a day. And you've covered grandpas and gramneg in a, in a variety of different situations. And, you know, the metronidazole, you can just give orally. You don't even need to uh, give it as an injection injection unless the oral route is compromised. Um, whereas if you're given, say, a moxjet and met for uh, sepsis of unknown source or intra-abdominal sepsis, the amox, it can be IV or oral, but it's three times a day, no matter which it is. Say it's IV, it's three times a day. The gent is one time a day, so that's four. And then there's the metronidazole too. So there's more nursing time involved with administering it, particularly if the amoxicillin is IV. But then also there's calculation time as well. And this is the thing, gentamicin has to be dosed according to the patient's weight and their renal function. And you need to do kind of trough levels to make sure that they... Um, have a sort of a gent-free period in the day um uh, that means that junior doctors have to do the calculation our pharmacists depending on where you do it in the uk it's junior doctors would have to make the calculation and issue the prescription and that introduces the possibility for error um and uh the scottish antimicrobial prescribing group who are the people that drove forward this kind of like um this policy realized that in advance and developed a calculator that basically every trust uses in one form or another to automatically do it. It's an Excel spreadsheet. You open up, you put in the patient's sort of age, height, sex, weight, and creatinine, and it spits out a value and it says, give this idiot. And they print it out and they give it. Um, and then it even tells you when to do the troughs. It has a little chart so that you can you can sort of look at it um, and figure out when you're going to do the blood level. It uh, goes in the patient's notes. The nurses all are trained on how to use it. Every new junior doctor in Scotland is taught how to use it mandatorily as part of their induction training. So it's completely uncontroversial. And you need all of that in the background in order to prescribe aminoglycoside safely. And that's uh, certainly not the case in other parts of the UK. And all of that kind of backbone if you don't have that, amyloglycosides become really dangerous uh, all of a sudden uh, if you're giving more than one dose uh, of it. If you're giving just a stat, it's really hard to kind of screw up somebody's kidneys. But if you're you know, giving three days or five days or even, God forbid, seven, um, that really has a kind of a follow-on effect. The, the toxicity is more to do with the duration of therapy and, and lack of time free from dentamycin. So you know, you, it's really, I don't think you can really cause harm, generally speaking, by a one-off dose of gent. And sometimes, you know, you would give it empirically before you even had the renal function, you know, you want to get antibiotics in quickly. And then it comes back that creatinine was actually 800 and they had a massive AKI. Whoops. But, you know, generally <laughs> speaking, if they've got sepsis, then this is, I had this conversation quite a lot. You know, if, even if someone's got renal impairment, 
but they've got a severe infection, then the most important thing to do is to sort that infection and the renal function will, if it, if it is related to the, the sepsis, improve. So um, even then, I'm not, I'm not too concerned. But as you say, it's the, it's the duration and the time. So most of our policy is related around, okay, well, let's start with Gent and then, you know, either after two or three days, they'll be ready for an IV to oral switch and we'll use something else. Um, or they're not getting better and there'll be a discussion with an infection specialist, in which case, you know, we can review that. Um, you know, sometimes that discussion is let's keep going with the gen out to five days. You know, that's the best agent at this point. And we'll just be really careful about asking about symptoms of autotoxicity and measuring the renal function and levels. Or sometimes it's, you know, let's switch to ta- um, piperacillin and tazobactam or something. Hmm. Is that usually... Are ID consultants involved in all? Is is this happening in like the primary teams? Like without ID input? No, this is like there's also an ID person involved to yeah, so help think through that, right? Our, our setup is is most of these calls will come. So we've got you know clinical microbiology or medical microbiology, however you put it, uh, which are um, usually accessible by by phone. And so I'd say the vast majority of less complex infection consults happen through that channel and each you know microbiologist will have an input to a department with a, with a link um and so you know the, the time frame of getting advice will be you know we've got really great guidelines which people use for anything routine so you know they shouldn't call us and if someone called me with a question that was in the guideline i'd be like go and look at the guideline and uh, then they'll if it gets to like three days the aside, they'll phone micro is what it's always written in the notes and i okay. think we're quite lucky as a specialty in that, that there's a real we're, we've got our thumb and all the pies and everyone phones us and uh you know you're really mm. tuned into the hospital and you get a lot of calls um but i think that's really great because there's a sort of trust it means there's a slight de-skilling uh, of everybody else and saying that i don't know how it works in in america uh, and then infectious diseases really are the people that come in and, you know, we have a lot of time and we'll do consult in, in person. So most of the consult mm. work for infection is done by telephone and nobody, we won't go and see the patient. It's more mm. just about like... Talking through. Yeah. Okay. And then then if it's more complicated, then we'll, we'll get someone to go see them. Uh, I saw a tweet uh, today, which was uh, ID Docs. Uh, seven new consults on a Sunday. This is too much. The teams are killing us, but also ID Docs. Our study clearly proves that IT consultation improves patient morbidity, mortality, fertility, stamina, credit score, the weather, blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> clinical teams yeah, just can't win or lose, can they? Like, we <laughs> want them to call us, but we also don't want them to call us because we're too busy. I, I always try and keep that frame in my head when I'm, like, really busy uh, on call and someone's phoning and they ask me a question that in my head I'm like, oh, like, you didn't really need to phone me. But, like, I'm like, well... At the end of the day, you know, I want the best outcome for that patient. And so... They called you because they, they need help. Yeah, and, and sort yeah, of I, I really line. enjoy, yeah. like, having that, that role of someone that is there to, to help. And you, you sometimes end up with calls and you, you get the sense, you're like, you're just calling me because you, you wanted someone and we're very available to help. And it might not actually be the antibiotics is the bit that you're advising on. It's some, something unrelated, like, actually, maybe you need to you know, maybe this patient's dying or, you know, that that's the sort of role that you play, but that's a real privilege to get mm-hmm. to do that. Anyway, gone way off topic, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Well, I mean, the 72-hour the review is baked in to the empirical guidelines. So if you're still on, okay. you know, gent at 72 hours, you have to call. And that, that even goes for something like 
like necrotizing fasciitis, um, gentamicin is involved there as well in, their, uh, in the sort of local protocol, um, you would still call and check. And that, that provides a good point on which to de-escalate um, and, and do an antimicrobial switch. And then at that point, you can, you can you know, think about using Piptaz or Comox or Keftraxone or, you know, whatever uh, is considered appropriate. A bit about dosing side effects, because people might not realize this. So the, the main two side effects are nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity. Nephrotoxicity is dose-dependent, and ototoxicity is duration-dependent, but dose-independent. So it doesn't matter how much of it you're giving. It doesn't accumulate like that. But what's happening is that every, you know, the, the length of time that the patient's on uh, gentamicin, say, the, some of it is getting into the hair cells in the, in, the, in the vestibular apparatus, and they're not getting out. So once they're in, they can't go. And then the hair cells get killed uh, by, the, by the local um, increase in gentamicin levels. And so that is usually seen if therapy extends beyond seven days. And there are a few case reports where if you're given a second ototoxic agent like furosemide is the main, uh, or furosemide, is the main uh, culprit there. Uh, and quite a lot of people in the UK are on furosemide. It's the main loop diuretic um, uh, used in heart failure. Um, you can get ototoxicity sooner. So that's that's kind of a reason to maybe kind of, if you can, pause the furosemide until they're finished, uh, their gentamice, of course, or use something else, obviously. Um, and the nephrotoxicity, there was a lot of concern when we moved over to this that we were going to have like this massive increase in dialysis rates and people's kidneys were going to get completely screwed with these these courses. But because we've kept the courses short, when you look at the sort of before and after they're introduced by trust, the rates of AKI1, according to KDIGO uh, categorizations, that's kind of creatinine of um, creatinine loss of about maybe 20 to 40%, I think. Um, those rates increase, but rates of... AKI 2, 3, 4, and need for dialysis stay the same. And if you look at people like six months down the line after they've had a course of genomycin when they're out of hospital, their creatinine has returned to whatever their baseline rate was. So there's no kind of permanent loss of renal function. So if you're just using short little tiny courses like what we're doing, there's no problem really. You just need to watch their creatinine in the... Um, in the moment and and for that reason our monitoring is pretty tight like if you're on gentamicin you have a gent level and a used knees uh, uh or you know renal function checked every day uh, without exception there's no uh wait a couple of days and then give it a check and then see what's happening like none of that you have to take it and it must be plotted and if you don't it's you know reported on as a uh, as a failure of care. And the nurses all know this as well. And so the nurses will all kind of make sure that it's done uh, as well, kind of a belt and braces uh, approach, clini uh, the clinical and nursing staff as well. But this is going to be increasingly hard to sell outside of uh, Scotland um, because of something that UCAST have done. So do you know who UCAST are, Sarah? I do. Yeah. I do. Um, so for the loyal listener and uh, uh Febrilologists <laughs> listening. I still have not found a name. You've not for found people. a collective name for febrile. <laughs> well, I'm putting febrilologists as a as, as a possibility. Um, the UCAST of the EU version of CLSI, and they mm. set the uh, the breakpoints, 
um, for what is susceptible and what is resistant. And uh, CLSI have got some breakpoints for uh, for aminoglycosides, which I think are pretty sensible. Um, and so they are. So for enterobacterialis and pseudomonas, there's there's no difference. If it's less than or equal to four, it's susceptible. If it's greater than 16, it's resistant. And if it's eight, then it's in considered intermediate. And probably, and, and, and I don't know how you feel about this, Sarah, I'd probably avoid it if I possibly could and to try and use an alternative mm-hmm. when it's intermediate. UCAST changed their interpretation of aminoglycoside breakpoints. And so now... For intrabacterales, if it's less than or equal to two, so it's quite a lot lower than um, CLSI, that sensitive greater than two is resistant. And for pseudomonas, those breakpoints apply only to tobramycin, uh, and there are separate ones for amicacin as well. They've got they've got breakpoints for that too, um, but not to gentamicin. So we talked about how gentamicin's got. Um, uh, is is not so good for um, uh, pseudomonas compared to etobromycin. And UCAST certainly agree, and that's because of research they've done about kind of ECOFs. And at this point, I will hand over to Callum, who is nominally the microbiologist of the two of us in the Idiots podcast, to remind me what the hell an ECOF <laughs> is and why, <laughs> and why it applies uh, here. Callum? Yeah, I don't know if this has been talked about before, but... Uh, in February, but um, so I think CSI call it uh, ECV and Newcastle mm-hmm. call it ECOF, but it's epidemiological cutoff values. And ECOF basic... sounds a bit fun, more fun, huh? Yeah, yeah, ECOF's <laughs> quite cool sounding name. ECV is quite hard to say. Yeah, sounds and... like a brand of espresso, but I mean, that's very yeah. European. Yeah, get I suppose. your ECOF now. You don't <laughs> yes. need to go to a coffee shop, but just get your email coffee. Um, <laughs> It's measures of the drug's MIC distribution that separate the bacterial populations into that is which are thought to be the wild population without any new resistance mechanisms and those with an acquired or mutational resistance. And so you're, you're basically looking at the whole range of what isolates are found, and they do this by gathering samples from all over Europe and then testing them, essentially. And... The idea is that the ECOF gives you a rough idea of of where you should set your break because you know breakpoints are, are are made up and really you're just balancing the risk of calling something sensitive when it's resistant or calling something resistant when it's sensitive and there's a huge field which I don't know a huge amount about but of you know setting those values and that is hugely important to get it right because if you get it wrong then you you might you know. And mistreat someone uh, so it's a really hard question but i think i don't know in this situation um it's quite hard to say you know what do you put your faith in do you put it in ecofs do you put it in uh in uh, vitro data and the lab side although it makes sense scientifically but then you know clinically we have this wealth of experience and it's being used very well and obviously it's not like you can just say well we want you gentamicin and no problem you know there's huge risks to getting rid of that as a treatment so i i think in this situation it's not not been the, the right decision yeah i mean yeah in resistant disease definitely so like what the, the ecos for tobramycin is 2 and so that corresponds with the sensitivity and the ECOF for gent is eight. Is that right? 
Yeah, so the e-call for, uh, for Pseudomonas yeah. uh, for Gent is eight uh, compared to two for Tobra or 16 for Amicacin. Okay. Uh, which, you know, we, we, we knew that already. We, it kind of makes sense that it's less resistant. But now they're saying you can't use Gent for Pseudomonas at all. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, I certainly know in my local hospital, uh, Nador South, we still report Gentamycin. Um, we report all three. So we report gentamicin, tobramycin, and amicacin. Um, but we use gentamicin or amicacin, basically. We don't really use tobra. Um, uh, and, uh, um, but yeah, like for, for, you know, it kind of in the wake of this, because um, this, uh, that, that position statement the UCAST um, gave, that came out in 2019, five years after the last trust, which was Lothian, by the way adopted these kind of narrow spectrum guidances and we'd been using gentamicin you know um in uh, scotland as the gram negative backbone including pseudomonas cover for five years by that point the whole country and bits of the country from 2008 to, to 2014 and we'd basically not had a problem uh with uh with outcomes uh, dropping with pseudomonas and we then the Scottish antimicrobial prescribing room then had to kind of think, well, what are we going to do? Like, are we going to move everything over to tobramycin? Are we going to do, you know, something else? That was felt to be logistically quite difficult. And um, so they put out a position paper, um, which we can link to uh, in the show notes. It's freely available online, basically saying, we note what UCAS have said mm-hmm. um, and we're going to ignore it because we've got a nation of 5 million people uh, being covered with uh, aminoglycosides for you know five to ten years uh, at this point, and we've had no problem uh, with it as long as you use the dosages that are commonly used these days. And that brings me to something that I want to point out. So UCAST have did a pretty big literature review of um, gentamicin before they decided to kind of recommend against it. And if you look at that literature review and look at the dosages that are used, they're all really titchy doses given multiple times a day. What is titchy? And mean? I, lo- I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> I thought for a second <laughs> I, should, I should just Google and look at it. But no, I want you, I think it'll be better if you tell me what titchy means. No problem, <laughs> Sarah. Yeah, uh, titchy, titchy means we. Uh- <laughs> what does we mean, James? Uh, we means toti. <laughs> What does Toti mean? Uh, Toti means titchy. Oh no! Um, so if you look, so if you look at the doses that are being used, they're all little, um, and they're, they're you know some of them maybe some of them add up to five milligrams per kilogram per day, but they'll be given three over, over three doses, so it'll be one point six six milligrams per kilogram per dose, and quite a lot of them are even less than that. And this is kind of all relating back to how aminoglycosides were given before the Hartford nomogram. So the Hartford Hospital, which is in hmm, Connecticut, I think, I want to say, they, at, at some point in the 90s, they were like, well, gentamicin is, expresses concentration-dependent killing. What really matters is how high above the MIC you get. So why are we giving it three times a day? Why not give it once a day? They've got this concentration-dependent killing, which is good, 
They've got a post-antibiotic vet, which means even when you drift below the MIC, the bugs are too stunned to start growing again. And so you will still have kind of a beneficial effect, even though uh, the level is, is, is below the MIC in the blood. And you'll get less nephrotoxicity because the kidneys have a gentamicin-free period. So gentamicin accumulates in renal tissue and it also accumulates in the urine, obviously, which is why it's so good for UTIs and pyelonephritis. But if your kidneys have a period of the day, even if it's just like two or three hours, where the gentamicin level is quite low, you get less nephrotoxicity compared to giving it three times a day, even if it's the same total daily dosage. And so the Hartford nomogram came out, it become fairly quickly adopted in the US and then that spread over to the UK and the EU. And so that's now what we give. So we now give gentamicin in this kind of optimized way. But when UCAST were looking at how good it was and what the outcomes were, they were looking at all of the old data from the 60s, 70s and 80s where we weren't giving it optimally. And so they looked at all that and they said, uh, this is... Um, you know, this is uh, not very good and we don't think that you're going to get good levels. Uh, and even if you did, um, uh, even if you did, we we uh, think that that ECOF is too high for Pseudomonas and so we're not going to recommend uh, using it. And that ignores all of the real world hard outcome data that uh, could have been uh, obtained from Scotland at the time. And I know that that's not like a double-blind, multi-center, pragmatic, randomized control trial. It's not the recovery trial we're talking about here. But quantity has a quality all of its own, as Diane Carlin would say. And if you've got a nation of 5 million people relying on gentamicin for their empirical pseudomonas cover, and you see no increase in mortality, that is worth taking notice of. So do you have a t-shirt that has gentamicin rules on it? <laughs> We should get those names. And Do you guys need know, merch for idiots? Yeah. <laughs> it's all going to be gentamicin related. Um, I did. We did have. The, I, I was thinking at what point would Callum suggest that we get merch? <laughs> well, now you uh, know what your if, first item will be. If ever make gentamicin is listening, then, you know, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose the last thing I'll, uh, I'll point out is that if you are going to use. Um, the, the, there's another reason to consider moving over to to gentamicin as your gram-negative backbone. That's for stewardship con, considerations. And in you, your audience will probably have heard of the Access Watch and Reserve, the WHO classification of antibiotics. And they, that was kind of brought out in, I think, 2016. The idea is that most of the antibiotics used should be access antibiotics. And then the watch ones are for kind of moderately resistant disease to kind of get you out of a bind. And reserve is kind of last resort stuff. And that's kind of what you think about like carbapenems and, and kind of astrinam on one end and amoxicillin and, and trimethoprim on the other. And NHS England took the access watch and reserve classifications, moved a few bits around to kind of like support UK practice, and then uh, put it out and said, Trusts have to have 60% of their antibiotics be accessed by, you know, this such and such a date. And they keep on sort of shifting the goalposts as, as kind of people keep on hitting targets. So it was 55 and then it's kind of moved up. And, you know, the, we've, we've got in our show notes like a, a slide that I picked of the, uh, of the access watch and reserves. I'm not going to read them all out. But if you look at the access ones, um, Sarah and Callum, um, 
you have a look at those and the 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 listeners should know that the access thing are things like penicillins, um, Coltrim, Doxy, oral phosphomycin, but not IV, um, Gentmet, uh, and look and try and concoct an empirical antibiotic regimen that was only access. So you're not allowed to use cephalosporins, you're not allowed to use chloramphenicol, you can't use quinolones, and you can't use comoxiclav or piptaz. What would you give if you wanted to try and sort of cover everything? So like to my mind, there's only really two options. You can use Cotrim plus metronidazole, or you can give amoxgent and met. Those are the only kind of options that I can see that we give you decent gram-positive cover, good gram-negative cover, and, you know, for Adderall cover, it's really just just metronidazole, isn't it? Everything else is sort of like, I would use it for a urinary tract infection, you know, or say penicillin, I would use it for, if I knew it was targeting streptococci and only streptococci, I'd use doxy for a chest infection, but basically everything else is, is too narrow a spectrum. So if you're creating a list of, uh, you're, sorry, creating an empirical antibiotic treatment list and you want to try and use as much access antibiotics as you can because you're trying to hit this this target, mm. that's really the only game in town. Or you put everyone in culture and met, which is a perfectly reasonable take-home conclusion from <laughs> this uh, this as well. Uh, yeah, is but not the argument that I'm making. Trimethoprim sulfa. Trim sulfa. Okay. Yes, that's right. Okay. Sorry, uh, Bactrim, um, uh, sometimes known as okay. or uh, Septrim. Yeah, Septrim yeah, in the UK, I think. That's a across the pond. <laughs> well, I I slowly am like picking up which ones things are, but. I you don't double check. Yes, on otherwise. Just be yeah. saying it in your term because it's your podcast. So you, should, <laughs> you, should, you should be telling us what words we're meant to be using. Do you know what? That's absolutely true. Actually, yeah. So um, you can splice. You could edit it like. over every time. You could like <laughs> record a snippet of us saying uh, "augmented," yeah. and then every time yeah. it says "comas," it just goes "augmented." No, I mean, it, I think it's good for people to know the different names for things. I hope everyone enjoyed your pitch for gentamycin and maybe they can uh, on Twitter where they can find idiots podcast and, and me and they can let us know what they're using and what they think. But I would love to have, you know, one last plug about where people can find you guys and find idiots podcast. Um, and of course, any other closing thoughts you might have. Yeah. So they can find us at idiots underscore pod on Twitter, uh, idiots podcasting at gmail.com and uh, idiots that's ID colon IOTS because I didn't realize how much that would screw up the search algorithm. Um, if you <laughs> plug that into your podcast pair of twice and our faces will pop up and you can subscribe at your leisure. Thanks very much for having us on, Sarah. This is like yeah, thanks, for, thanks for having us. And uh, this is like podcasting with ID podcast royalty here. I feel like I'm having tea with the queen. I don't know about that. <laughs> Well, we're hoping that I I really want you guys to come back and for us to keep talking about we can make it a series and call it like across the pond or something. But just like talking about in daily practice, the things that we're doing similarly or or differently. Yeah, yeah, the differences. Yeah. I mean, this was a weird one, because it's different practice in different bits of the UK, let alone across in the US. But then, um, you know, the way that we do things uh, differently in the UK, US, that's definitely rich ground. Um, We'll have plenty. uh, So yeah, Uh, thanks for having (laughs) us on. Thanks. 
All right. Thanks to Jamie and Cal for joining Febrile today. Everyone, please check out the Idiots podcast for more and send us topics that we can chat about in future combo episodes. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next week.